Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I always am told to introduce myself. So I'm Perry. I really don't know what else to say other than I'm Perry. Uh, my wife and I, Becky, lead the children's ministry. And I don't know how many of y'all, just a little quick survey. Uh, number one, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. I didn't know Rick was going to be here today. So there might be a couple of things that if I say it, I'm going to intentionally look away. So y'all just nod, and if he's staring or throwing something, just give me like a sign or something. Uh, but it, we lead a children's ministry. Children's ministry about six weeks ago started having a kids' praise and worship time while the adults have a praise and worship time. And there's been sort of a, a running theme with the kids that if they could ever get loud enough that Pastor Rick could hear them in here, that Mr. Perry might get fired. So I don't know if y'all heard it this morning. But I could hear him in the background, so I officially tender my resignation or whatever that case may be. Um, so anyway, if you hear something strange, we're not killing a kid most of the time. They're, they're back there, they're having fun, they're singing, you know, we're bribing them with candy. So if they're bouncing off the wall, when you get them back, that's your problem, not ours. We survived. That's pretty much how it goes. So <clears throat> just quick survey, what major event... I would say there is no wrong answer, but there's always a wrong answer. What major event takes place in, thanks, uh, in November? Oh! Oh! <sighs> Thank you. Okay, so, so here's what, you, I wasn't even going to say this. Here's what you should know. I have had more trouble preparing for this message than I have a message in so long. It seemed, yesterday at 3 o'clock, I scrapped what I was doing, started completely over. Uh, things have just been completely unraveling. I'm telling you all this because we come to church and we, how are you? I'm good, brother. How are you? And we all know that's a lie from the pit of hell. and None of us are good. Everything's falling apart. Our kids stabbed each other this morning. We spilled coffee. You know, we, we were having a major fight on the way out. That's what, okay, so that's what happened. It culminated with this. I'm staying back a little bit because as I go to step in the shower this morning, the power goes out. So if you smell something, it's me. I automatically scream, don't flush the toilet. I got to have enough water to brush my teeth and splash the water on my face, okay? So that, that's sort of what has led up to this. Now, here's what the bad part is. My opening question about what happens in November Really sets the tone for everything, and I just completely shot it. So we'll start over, all right? Here we go. What major event takes place in the month of November? Wrong. Turkey coma day. What is wrong with you people? Are you un-American? Where do you come from? No, okay. Thanksgiving, you're right. So we are, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in a mini-sermon series called The Thankful Life, all right? So when uh, Pastor Rick was setting this up and, and lining up people, uh, you know, to fill in for a couple weeks after he had a, a little procedure, I was like, this is great. This is thankful. That's the easy one. Sure, I'll preach on the fourth. Good. You're preaching on giving. Seriously? What did I do to make you mad? That was the first question that goes through my mind. You know, while I'm talking about giving, you want me to explain the Trinity in detail, explain the virgin birth, anything else that you want me to take care of. And then it dawned on me. I'm going to stay on this side. Then it dawned on me. A few weeks back, I thought it would be sort of humor. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Children, please don't imitate your pastor and throw things in church. <clears throat> I've never been heckled. 20-some years. 
I'm preaching. I've never had anything thrown at me. This is a great day. It's monumental. So, so anyway, I figured it out. And since he just threw something, it's going to get real for just a second. I figured it out. A few weeks ago, I said that if this is controversial and you have any complaints, to email me at Pastor Ricky. You know, didn't know this. He hates... <laughs> See, see, we should be filming this. This is great. Evidently, he does not like his name with a Y added to the end of it. Yeah, so he's sitting there, comes something else. <laughs> this is great. This is perfect. His checkbook fell out and we're talking about giving. This is a sign from God. 50 people are getting saved. We're taking up two offerings. This is great. This is perfect. So, so here's the deal. As I was thinking through all of this, I did realize I'm probably the perfect person to talk about the idea of giving, and here's why. Number one, I'm a salesman by nature, okay? Number two, I just happened for the last few years to be a salesman by trade. Here is my selling technique. I'm overly transparent with everything. I don't hide anything. I just, from day one, here's my approach. Blah. That's what we got. Then we'll deal with it. So I'm going to deal with the pink elephant that is in the room as we talk about the idea of cheerful giving, okay? I'm going to tell you you should consider giving more money than you already do. This is great. <laughs> this is, you couldn't script this, people. This is great, okay? All right? But here's why I'm the perfect person to do this. There is absolutely no ulterior motive. There's nothing that I'll gain there's nothing that I'll lose from any way that you respond to the Word of God today. Not to what I say or don't say, but there's nothing that I'll gain or lose. There's nothing that will affect me either way by the way that you respond. <clears throat> but here's what I am going to go ahead and do. I'm going to begin. I'm actually breaking all of my preaching rules this morning. I'm going to begin by addressing three objections that are usually pretty common when you come to a service and the message topic for that day happens to be forgiving, okay? All right, objection number one. Everybody ready? Book your seatbelt. This is going to be great. The church just wants my money. Objection number one. You ever heard anybody say that? Here's what usually happens. If you invited somebody and today's their first day here and you're sweating, I know why you're sweating. Because you said, I've been asking these people to come to Anthony Church for 16 years. We've only been in existence five, 16 years. They finally show up, and the topic today is giving. Here's the deal. The church does not want or need your money. Make sure you just heard what I just said. The church does not want or need your money. Matter of fact, I'm going to go a step farther. God does not want or need your money. All right? But here is the truth. God wants you. He wants every aspect of you. He wants who you are, how you think, how you act, how you react. He wants all of you. And whether we want to admit it or not, but our money is part of us. If we're truthful, our money is a big part of us. There's a reason that people tend to get a little uncomfortable, squirm a little bit, get mad, all those type of things when you talk about money. The reason is, is because it's very important to them. All right? But the key today is not that the church wants your money. We don't want your money. We don't need your money. We want you to find a place 
in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, I can guarantee you that God's going to deal with every aspect of your life, including your finances. So if God's going to do that, why don't we prepare and go ahead and talk about it and deal with the elephant in the room, okay? Objection number one, the church just wants my money. Objection number two. By the way, let me just say this. This is how I think, so sometimes y'all laugh. I'm just, this is what goes on between ear and ear. We don't want anything from you. Matter of fact, we want to give you something. So today, if Anthem Church is not your permanent church home, when the sermon is over, I want you to go find somebody that has on a blue Anthem t-shirt and tell them, Perry said you would buy my lunch today. <laughs> People are zipping up coats. <laughs> Their hearts have just been revealed. Great. I'm getting some very serious stares at this point. All right, objection number two. My money is none of your business. Hmm. My money is none of your business. Well, here's the problem with that. The problem with the idea that my money is none of your business and you shouldn't stand up on a stage for an hour and yell at me about my money is this. Speaking about your money is biblical. Matter of fact, one of the topics that Jesus talked about most throughout the Gospels is money. So it's biblical. And if we're going to be true to the Bible, if we're going to be true to the Scripture, as we preach through, there are going to be topics that you don't want to hear and I don't want to talk about. But if they're biblical, we're challenged, we're commanded to deal with those issues. All right? So number one, they're biblical. Number, t number B, oh boy, this is going to be a long day. Your money's no different than any other spiritual aspect of your life. Let that sink through for just a second. Your money is no different than any other aspect of your spiritual life. People don't get offended when you ask about their prayer life or their quiet time. People don't usually get offended when you ask them about something they're struggling with. Maybe there's a sin or maybe there's something God's calling them to do. People don't get offended by that. People tend to get offended when you ask about their money. But your money's no different than any other aspect of your spiritual life. Joey made a perfect comment to lead into this while we were doing our worship today. You know, we use the term worship a lot, and lots of times we just compartmentalize it to be the songs that we sing. And worship is not simply the songs that we sing. That's a very small aspect of worship. Worship is who we are. It's what we do. It's what we say. It's how we act. It's how we react. It's how we tell people about what God's done in our life. It's how we invite people to church. It's how we give. It's the culmination of who we are and how we live and what we do. So it, in essence, is part of our business, what you do with your money. The third one is this. Third objection. I can't afford it. And this is where I'm very excited to be. Because I would say to you, that you can't afford not to allow God to have control of your finances. All right? I say that saying this. One of the reasons that this is the perfect, I'm the perfect person for this, is there's probably no other area in my life since becoming an adult, but especially since becoming a Christian, but since becoming an adult, that God has dealt with me more. Okay? And here's the deal. I said this a few weeks back, and some of you thought this was really weird. The church is not a perfect place for perfect people. Church is a place for all of us who are jacked up to come in so God can change us and transform us into people that aren't as jacked up, okay? There's never been an issue that I'm more jacked up in than finances, all right? 
And 20 some years ago, God began to deal with me about my fight. And here's what's so amazing about this. Here's how this started. I bought a shotgun. All right, 500 bucks, saved up. I was a broke college student. And y'all don't understand. I was a broke, oodles of noodles, college student, okay? Saved up, bought a shotgun, $500. I loved it. I had wanted it. Like two days later, there was a need that popped up in the church that I was at, and it was $45. 500 45 All right? I said, $45? Good gracious. These people think I made a money. I have $45. Can't do this. And as only the Holy Spirit can do. The Holy Spirit has this gentleness of drawing and convicting and breaking, but Perry's real hard-headed, so rarely is it ever soft and gentle. He slapped me in the back of the head and said, Are you an idiot? Seriously. $45? And that began a process over years of this whole thing of how God continued to show himself more than faithful, more than trustworthy in the area of finances in my life. I heard this story, and it absolutely amazed me. Lots of times we talk about finances. People go to the book of Malachi. It's actually a good story, but you've got to be really careful because it can get a little bit twisted. But in that story, God says, test me on this. One of the areas that God says, test me, and I will prove myself to be faithful. Well, I heard a pastor named David Jeremiah tell this story one time about how a couple new to his church came to him, and they said, you know what, we're really struggling with our finances, we're not sure what to do, we feel like we should be tithing, by the way, we'll mention it in just a minute, tithing is just really just simply a, an Old Testament term, and in the depths of it, it basically means 10%, it's a starting point, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but basically he said, okay, I'll tell you what to do, take at the beginning of the month, write a check for 10% of your income, give it to me, I'll put it in my desk, won't cash it till the end of the month. You come to me at the end of the month. Anytime you need your check back, I'll give you a check back. Do you trust me? They said, of course, pastor, we trust you. He said, shame on you. How can you trust me, your pastor, with a check, and you can't trust God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the person that spoke everything out of nothing, that told the water exactly where to stop, the land where to begin, each star where to hang, every galaxy where to be. How can you trust me with a check, but can't trust God to be faithful to what he said. By the way, i got to say this. If you don't know what a check is, Google it. It's an amazing thing. There are some people that are old like myself that we still write checks. It's an amazing time. It's a piece of paper. You write some stuff on it. Somehow it's official. You give it to people. You cash it. But some of y'all, when I said the word check, said, didn't know I have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like a card, except it's not paper, and you write stuff on it. That's the best I know how to Google it, Okay. But here, here's the deal. God has proven himself faithful time and time and time and time again. And those three objections, that's not an exhaustive list, but those are all objections that I myself have dealt with and have seen God tear down and build up and replace and work through the greatest in my life. And my goal for you today, here's my motive. I want something for you. No matter where you are, in your walk, your relationship, this idea of church, this idea of God, and all these, no matter where we are, I have a motive, and I want you to leave here different than you were when you came into this place. If that's dealing with your finances as a child of God, then praise his name for that. 
If this is maybe one of the first times that you've ever heard this idea that God would love us so much that he would give to us his son who would leave heaven, come to earth, die on a cross, be buried in a barry tomb, and be raised again on the third day, then my motive is for you to meet him in a real and personal way. Not a story you've heard, not some words you can regurgitate, but meet him in a way that it changes your life. At this crossroads, you leave and you're never the same as you are today. I have a motive. And that is the motive. I want every person in this room to lead by responding in faith to exactly what God would say to you about giving. Your life, your person, your mind, your thoughts, your money, everything back to the one that would go to such an extreme to know us and to know us in a real and personable way. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12. As we're in this series, as we begin this series about a thankful life, we basically are going to spend a few weeks talking about the idea that because God has given us so much, we don't owe him anything, but as a response to his giving to us, we want to live a life that is just saturated and overflowing with thankfulness in everything that we do. That begins with the idea of being a cheerful giver. Now, here's the deal. This is going to be the weirdest passage anybody's ever shared with you about the idea of being a cheerful giver. And here's why. The word cheerful is not listed anywhere in here. It's really not even implied anywhere in here. But there is a theme that runs through the scriptures when you talk about the idea of giving that you cannot separate the idea from cheerful with the idea of biblical giving. All biblical giving is done out of an overflowing, excited heart. Now, some of you didn't catch that. So let's back up and say it this way. <clears throat> There's a difference in giving to the work of God, the gospel ministry, and giving to anything else. All right? How many of you have ever wrote a check? Google it. How many of you have ever wrote a check to the IRS? And as you wrote that check, you just overwhelmed with joy. You were giddy as a middle school girl. You could barely sign your name because you were so excited to write a check to the IRS. None of us. But you gave it anyway. Most of us give it grudgingly. Most of us do like I do and wait to the last 10 minutes to get into the post office to have it postmarked on the day that it's going to be postmarked because in some way that's your rebellion against the man, right? All right? So hear me, we can give and it not be cheerful. But biblical giving always brings with it this excitement. But I really don't know how to explain that excitement to you. Except for one thing. And I'm going to be very careful of how I do this. Number one, because I don't want my wife to kill me in my sleep, I'm going to move to this side. <clears throat> if you don't know me, I tend to be, and I know this can be very hard for some of y'all at this point, this is dangerous. She's on one side, Rick's on this side. <laughs> I didn't plan all this out, people. This is, we're, just, we're just moving here. If you don't know me, I tend to be very loud I have the same disease that the Apostle Peter had in the New Testament, open mouth, insert foot, say things, can't get it back, in my mind think, did I really just say that out loud? That's me, okay? I know this can be hard for y'all to believe, but sometimes in marriage, that can cause a little difficulty. I know y'all are looking at me and thinking, there's no way. 
that his darling wife could ever be anything but overenjoyed with him. But sometimes <laughs> she has that look of, I would kill you if they wouldn't put me in prison for this, you know? But here's the trick, all right, all right, here's the trick. If you ever have a problem with Becky, I'm going to sit down because this could get, I'm, I'm not trying to be crass. But here's the trick. Becky's very laid back. She's very calm. She's very sweet. I told somebody the other day, she's like the most gracious person I've ever met. You could spit on her, and she would say, well, I know that there's a reason. They didn't, they didn't mean to do that. That's, that's just Becky. But if you ever do get her, like, riled up, next level, she's about to blow a gasket. She's a country girl. She's about to pull her flip-flops and her earrings off and go ballistic. If you ever get to that point, there is one surefire way to reel her back in. No matter what you've done, no matter how mad she is, there's one surefire way. I want to be very careful how I say this. If you can say or bring up or do anything related to flatulence, she will bust out laughing like a middle school boy. I mean, for real. There are other words for it, but I'm trying not to use those words. But seriously, th th thank you. I appreciate that. that she, I don't care how mad she is, how much she's ready to kill you, she will giggle for hours. <laughs> you can completely get out of anything, all right? There's only one point in time that that does not prove true, and that's when she's asleep. Because when she is asleep, she is grumpy. If you roll over and pull the covers a little bit, she might, and she's jerking it back. You wake her up, you're getting slapped, punched. It's ridiculous. There's the picture I never want you to forget. When you think about giving and hilarious giving, cheerful giving, I want you to think about, not flatulence, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about that picture of the idea of something being grudging and resented and just that, Ugh. Or the other side of that, that you do it, even though the circumstances might not be the best, even though the situation might not be the best, even though in your heart you're thinking, I have no clue how this is working. I always want you to picture that as that is the idea of cheerful giving. That is the idea that we're going to use synonymously with biblical giving. Because all through the scriptures, anytime you see the idea of biblical giving taught, it is done with the heart of our circumstances, even our finances don't control us. We're we're doing this in response to what God has done, and he said, and he will, and that's the end of it. So Mark chapter 12, the world's longest introduction. There are three lessons that we can learn from Jesus Christ himself about giving, all right? The first one is this. He's watching. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41, says this. And he, the he there is Jesus, and he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Now, here's what's so funny about this, all right? This is way out of context. Number one, don't flip back now, but if you flip back in Mark chapter 12, the, he's in this pattern, Jesus is, in his earthly ministry, like where he's teaching and he's healing, and then all of a sudden the religious people who are always sort of mad at him, they show up and they try to trick him with something, and they're trying to figure out how to arrest him, and they're always trying to just catch him in something. And even in the beginning of Mark chapter 12, some of the religious people come to him with this random question, and he basically schools them, drops the mic, walks off. This is what's so crazy about Mark chapter 12, verse 41. He's in the temple. And he's in one of the busiest areas of the temple. He's in the place that people would come to put their offerings, either for a specific 
offering according to the Jewish law, or for what's basically just a generic general giving fund, there were 13 boxes, vases. They were called trumpets because they were sort of in the shape of a trumpet sat down where people would come in and they would take their offering, they would throw it in. He's in this place. My like, how does this happen, has to ask. How did he slip into here and nobody see him? Because the implications from what we're going to see here in this story is that Jesus has sort of slipped in. He's got in sort of an an out-of-the-way place, and he's just watching what is going on. He's just checking out. Now, some of y'all are looking so spiritual. I know y'all are people watchers, too. I don't go to the mall. The mall is like the first level of purgatory if I believe in purgatory. I'm not going to the mall. There's nothing there that I ever need. So I can't people watch at the mall, but like the state fair. We just got done with the state fair. State fair is a great place to people watch. Go get an ear of corn, triple dip it in butter, get off to the side somewhere and just watch a lot of weirdos walk, walk by and spend it. Now, here's the deal. I'm messed, more messed up than anybody else. So when I say the weirdos, I'm, I'm including myself in it. We're all jacked up, that sort of thing. But I like to watch people because you see the weirdest things. You know, you see people walking by that are excited about dumb stuff. And you see people walking by that are mad about silly stuff. And you see people walking by and they're fighting. And you see people walking by and they're... People watching is pretty fun. It's a little twisted, I admit, but it's pretty fun. Can we agree? This isn't what Jesus is doing, though. Jesus isn't like semi-sort of stalkery, sitting back watching people. No, 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 no. Here's the thing for us to remember. When we read these words written 2,000 years ago, they're just as applicable to us today. Jesus is still watching us. Let me ask you this. Who do you live to impress? Seriously, think about that just for a second. Who is it that you're living to try to impress? There's a couple of reasons I ask that. Because number one, whoever that person is, when you know they're watching, you act different. If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the person or the people or the people group that you want to impress when they're watching, you will act differently. You will conform to whatever it is that you think would impress them. Who do you live to impress? I tell you what, think about it this way. Who do you spend the greatest amount of your resources, not just your money, your time, your energy, your efforts, your money, to imitate or emulate or to impress? See, because there's a principle here as we begin to look at this that we have a person who is watching us. And he's not watching us because he's waiting for us to mess up. And he's not watching us because in some weird, creepy way, he's just people watching. He's watching us because we are his. He's created and he's formed and he's fashioned us. From the bottom of our feet to the top of our head where he knows the number of hairs that we have. He knows us. And he has gone to great lengths to know us and to know us intimately. The Bible says that Jesus was the one who knew no sin, but he became sin so that you and I who are sinners could become the very righteousness of God. And Jesus Christ is watching us. He is at a place of where he's gone to great lengths, where he would die on a cross so that you and I could become his children. And he's watching us. Sometimes I believe that we need to stop and think, who is it that we're living to impress? Because what I find more often than not in myself, it's not the person of Jesus. It's somebody or something else. Mark chapter 12 says, as he sat there and as he watched, he watched the people put the money into the offering box. 
Why is this so important? Because what it tells us in the next few verses, it tells us what he saw as he sat there in the temple that day. The second half of verse 41 says this, Many rich people put in large sums. Verse 42 says, And a poor widow. Stop right there. I'm sorry, I can't get through this. How do you know this woman's a widow? How do you know she's a poor widow? Because there was a custom of the time that widows would dress in a certain specific way. They would wear a specific garment, a specific dress, so that they could easily be identified. This was law. This was Jewish law. So you could easily identify this woman as she is a widow woman. And by the condition of those clothes that she wore, you could very easily determine that she's not only a widow, she is a poor widow. And it says that as Jesus is sitting there, that the rich people are coming in and they're giving an abundant offering. My, like, OCD, ADD, ESPN all kicks in when I read stories like this. And I think about these brass things sitting here and people coming by and throwing money. Think about how loud that would be. I mean, people coming in with just armfuls and clank, 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 clank. And Jesus says as he's sitting there and he's watching the rich come in, It's not necessarily that we're told that the rich are making a show, but there's an implication there that because of what they're doing, because of how they're doing it, there's a show being put on. And then to contrast this, there's a poor widow woman. He goes on to tell us this poor widow woman, verse 2, came and she put in two small copper coins, which make up a penny. Now, here's the thing about this. This woman... It's a complete contrast from the rich people. So get this picture. Jesus is sitting out of the way. People are coming in. They're making their offerings. They're putting stuff in. There are rich people that are coming in and bringing large amounts. The implication is most of them are coming in to do it with at least some degree of show so that people can see what they're doing, what they're bringing. And then in contrast, this woman comes by very calm, very quiet, very humble, and just walks by and drops two coins in and continues on her way. See the heart of a cheerful giver. See right here the heart of a cheerful giver, that how you can be seen is that your heart, your heart is seen by the way in which you are doing this. As we look at the idea of your target audience, as we look at the idea of how you spend your money, where you spend your money, here's the picture as we realize that Jesus is watching. How do you respond when he's the only person that is looking at what you're doing? Whether we're talking about your giving, where we're talking about your living, where we're talking about what you say, whether we're talking about how you act, how you react, how do we respond when we see this lesson that Jesus is is watching? Lesson number two that we can learn. It, being given, is for all of his disciples. Now, remember objection number one? Remember objection number one, that the church just wants my money? So here's the reason that I can prove to you that we don't want your money. Jesus is specifically talking to believers. Look at what what happens. Verse 43. It says, And he, Jesus, called his disciples to him, and he said to them. Now, notice this. What do we see throughout the scripture lots of times when Jesus wants to teach a lesson? When he's trying to teach a story? When he's going to share a parable? 
Not 100% of the time, but most of the time, Jesus doesn't sit down and get secluded and draw the small crowd to him unless it's an important, intimate lesson. Lots of times he would stand up. All through the gospel, we're given illustrations and times of where he would stand up and just proclaim truths to thousands of people that swarms of people would follow him. And the exact opposite is happening here. He slipped into the temple. He's got into a, a, a secluded place. He's watching people as they would come and give to the offering. And now, as he sees a lesson, he draws the believers to himself. He draws his disciples, and he calls them to himself. Here, here's, a, here's a quote that I want you to meditate on. J.D. Greer says, If you have not begun to tithe, you have not really begun the walk of faith. See, there's a progression in the life of a believer. There's a progression, and this is why most of the time the idea of giving is such a difficult one to teach about. Because when we come to know Christ, that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story. And giving is an element that begins to be incorporated there. When we become a child of God, there usually is a place that we start in giving financially. Most of us, if we have any experience in church, we would know it to be called the tithe. The tithe is a great starting point. The tithe is a great place to start as we're talking about giving financially where we would take approximately a tenth of what we make and give it back weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, however we're paid. But the progression in the New Testament is not that we would tithe and we would check something off our list. But there's a progression in the New Testament that as we become believers and as we begin to give, that that tithe turns into what is called sacrificial giving. Can you imagine the conversation that takes place that day? Can you imagine as Jesus would call his disciples around him and say, Come here, boys, I've got to tell you something. I imagine, here again, this is just me imagining, but I imagine none of them even saw the widow. They're probably all enamored by all the giving that's taking place and all the, the just droves of money that's being given. And this one woman slips in, slips out, gives an offering, and takes off. See, there's a progression when we become a believer when it comes to giving. We begin with a tithe. It continues to sacrificial giving. Please hear this. This is why this is so important to me. I grew up in an environment where there was an unspoken rule, maybe an unspoken suggestion, that people should in some way clean up and transform and change into something and then they would be willing or able to come to God. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that idea is the gospel. Because that's not what the gospel tells us. The gospel would tell us that Jesus would meet us exactly where we are as who we are, and then he, as our Savior, would be the one that be would begin in our lives to deal with the things that either need to be changed or transformed, whether that's our giving, whether that's our speech, whether that's the people that we allow to influence us. That's the idea. Not that we would clean up and do something and come to God, but rather that we would meet God at the foot of the cross as broken, messed up people, and then God would begin to do in our lives exactly what he desires to do. Our giving is no different. Our giving is no different that as we meet Jesus and as we begin to walk by faith and as we begin to trust him, as we begin to test him, as we begin to give, he will continually through the power of his Holy Spirit and the working of his Holy Spirit, mold us into the sacrificial givers that he's desired us to be. 
I mentioned this a, a while back. I think about two or three times ago that I preached. I mentioned that in 2011, I had a, a pretty, pretty life-changing experience. I, I had stage four cancer. It came out of nowhere. I was at work one day, felt bad. Next thing you know, I was in the hospital. So for about a year and a half, I would be in the hospital for a week and out of the hospital for a week and back in the hospital for a week. And you can sort of imagine when you're in the hospital, number one, you're not working. Number two, when you're in the hospital, you're acquiring a amount of bills that you've never in your life acquired before. All right? We had horrible insurance. We still have horrible health insurance. There is no such thing as good health insurance, so that's just opinion. I'll shut up at that point. Uh, but we had horrible health insurance. We had $10,000 individual deductibles. I'm going somewhere with this. So I got sick in November, all right? So if you're not a math person, uh, every week my pharmacy bill was roughly about $26,000. That's not what the doctors got paid. That's not what it called the bed cost. That's not for what the meals. That was just simply the medicine that they gave me was roughly $26,000. So at the end of week one, we hit deductible number one. January 1st, never dawned on me how that whole deductible thing worked prior to this. January 1st, your deductible is zero. So about January 13th, I get another bill. By the way, Mr. Cotton, you owe us $10,000 more for XYZ. Amazingly, Becky had some stuff going on about the same time and turned out to be nothing. But I, I, most of the time, the way doctors fi figure that stuff out is you know, go do this test. That's not it. Go do this test. That's not it. Go do this test. So we hit three $10,000 deductibles from November 21st until about May of 2012. Not working and acquiring more bills than we'd ever had. We continued to make an agreement with what God had led us to do, tithing, and to continue past tithing, sacrificially giving, that even in the midst of this time, that we would continue to give exactly as we were giving before. And I can't tell you exactly how this worked. Matter of fact, if I took a piece of pencil and a piece of paper, I guarantee you this wouldn't work. But how time and time and time again, God continued to show up and to show off and to show out and through that financially provide through us for us the whole exact time. But the purpose and the place that we were at is that God had led us to a place of sacrificial giving. It was the progression that we would begin to tithe a specific amount and then that by the leading of the Holy Spirit, he would prove himself to be faithful. And that he would provide as we were obedient to him. Here's the thing. God is not only watching. But number two, it's something that he requires of all his disciples. Don't lose sight of the fact, as we go through this story, that if you're not a child of God, simply the thing that God wants from you is your heart, your life, your surrender. But as a child of God, there are areas, including our giving, that he's expecting us to respond to him as he leads us in certain ways. Number three, his math. The third lesson we can learn about Jesus in giving is that his math doesn't add up. His math doesn't add up. By the way, neither does the idea of being a cheerful giver. That's almost an oxymoron, right? Y'all know what oxymorons are. Y'all could nod. You can interact. It's okay. Am I the only person when Brent said that we had a QR reader looked around and thought, do we have a protocol for this? What does that even mean? No clue what he was talking about. Y'all can look at me and nod. The idea of cheerful giver doesn't make sense, all right? Neither does the idea of being a living sacrifice. 
that we're commanded to be all through the New Testament. Neither does the idea that a holy God would send his son to redeem sinful man to himself. This book doesn't make sense. Apart from the interaction of a holy God in our life that would go to great lengths to know us and to love us and to make us his children. And when we look at the idea of giving, the last lesson that we see from the person of Jesus is that his math doesn't always add up. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 12. Verse 43, and it says, And he called his disciples to him. He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Wait, what are you talking about? How in the world can Jesus say that as rich people are coming and pouring in their offerings and their gifts, that this woman who came and dropped two pennies that don't even equal two coins, that don't even equal a penny, that she gave more than everyone else? How can Jesus say that? Verse 44, it says, For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. As we close here today and as we wrap up, I'm, I'm doing something completely out of context here. There are five things that I want us to dwell on, five facts that I want us to ponder on, not just today as we're here, but as you leave, I want you to take these five facts about giving, and I want them to be the process that God uses according to his word to change and transform the way that you look at the idea of giving. And it begins with this idea. Don't miss what happened. Jesus is sitting out of the way, and he's watching. And as he's sitting out of the way watching, he's seeing rich people come in and give out of their abundance. And he sees this one woman come in very quickly, very quietly, with no show whatsoever. She drops two coins in. He calls his disciples to him and says, do you see what just happened? Everybody else has came and they've given out of their abundance. But this woman has given more than anybody else today. She's given not out of her extra, but she's given of everything that she had. Those two coins, most likely for a widow in her time, was a day's wage. It's everything that she had made that day in order to survive, to feed herself, to provide for herself. But she, not giving one, gave both of those back to God. Jesus would call his disciples together and say, This is the picture of a cheerful giver. These five things are going to be on the board. If you are a note taker, I would suggest you jot those down. I'm going to talk fast. You're going to listen fast. But five facts that I want us all to digest about cheerful giving. The first is this. The posture of our heart is important. The posture of our heart is important. Remember the idea of cheerfully giving versus grudgingly giving? Remember the idea that we all give to something? Whether it's the IRS or anybody else, we all give things. But the important thing when we look at the idea of giving spiritually and the spiritual aspects of giving is that God looks at the condition of our heart. God looks that as we give, that we're giving out of a motivation to see his kingdom furthered. That he sees that we're giving out of a motivation, not of wanting to get something back. By the way, the scripture is full of times where God says, test me. I'm not going to leave you high and dry, but the reason that we give is not so that we can get something back. The reason that we give is so that we can see God do what he's promised that he'll do in the lives of other people that we've had the privilege of experiencing. The posture of our heart is vitally important. 
Number two, cheerful giving must cost us something. Cheerful giving must cost us something. Jesus said the rich people, they gave and they gave, but they, they came and they gave, but they gave out of the abundance. But this woman gave everything that she had. She very easily could have put one coin in and put one coin in her pocket and walked away, and no one around her would have known any different. No one. And in the grand scheme of earthly math, that one coin wouldn't have made any difference in the counting of that offering today. But that woman came, and with a heart that mattered, gave everything that she had, and she gave what cost her. Here's an important one, number three. God can do little with much. I would almost say this is the most important thing that we can take away from here today. Because if God can't do little with much, very good. I wanted to see if y'all were paying attention. You all passed? Now I'm completely off. It's on the board. God can do much with little. That's what I meant. This big, wow, I just said this is the most important. I said it backwards. Rick's looking at me, isn't he? I think I'll turn this way. God can do much with little. This is the key to everything that we would talk about with giving. Because if God can't take what we give and do what he intends to do with it, we're wasting our time. If God can't take our little and do much with it, then we've missed the picture of the gospel. If God can't do that, we miss the idea that God would take us as the trash of this world and make us the treasure of his eye through his son Jesus Christ. God specializes in taking very small and doing amazing things with it. Number four. Jesus will one day square all accounts. See, the thing that we might have passed over in this story is that this widow woman never had a clue what was going on. Nowhere in it does it ever say that she would have known that Jesus was watching. Nowhere in it do we know that, or are we ever told that she knows that Jesus brought his disciples together and used her as an example. Certainly she did not know that both Mark and Luke would record this story in the Gospels and that 2,000 years later we would stand here today and talk about her and her offering in the temple. But there was a day, and there will come a day when she will stand before God and she will see what God saw, and she'll be reminded of what was happening, and she'll be told. I like to call it the Job effect. Job had no clue what was going on in his life until the day he breathed his last and stood before God. And that's what we see here, and the same thing will happen for all of us. There will come a day that we'll stand before the Lord, and as we stand before the Lord, he will square all his accounts. And the only thing that we bring of any worth to that place is to say that I'm your child and that I was obedient to what you called me to do. Fifthly, this. Cheerful giving is an equal opportunity. Equal opportunity. Cheerful giving is an equal opportunity, whether you're rich or poor. Matter of fact, I would actually say this makes no sense. But I would say this. The less that you have and the less that you make, the easier it is to begin the process of giving. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. Think about it. When I made $100, it's a whole lot easier to give $10 than when I made $1,000 to give $100. It's a whole lot easier to give $100 than if you make $2,000 to give $200. I better stop or my math's going to get off here somewhere down the line. 
But God, this is an equal opportunity. This is one of those things where we use phrases like the ground is level at the cross. This is an equal opportunity area of obedience in our life. God doesn't say when you make this or if you make this. That No, no matter what it is that you would give. I was listening to a podcast a while back, and, and the pastor said this. We all tithe to something. Now, I told you previously that the idea of giving has been something God's worked on in my life over and over and over again. And when I heard this, even a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, I thought, that makes no sense that we all tithe to something. But it's true. We all give our best and our first to something or someone. Most of us, it's either one of two things. We either, if we get some extra money, we either use it for some sort of creature comfort that we want, or we put it in savings. Think about it. If you get some extra money, there's only about two questions that you ask. What can I spend this on, or can I invest this somewhere, put it in the bank? Now, if you really want to see that God has a sense of humor, usually he marries those two together. And you've got a spender and a saver. And then when you get some money, the spender says, ooh, we can go get this. And the saver says, ooh, we can put this there. But here's the thing about spiritual giving, biblical giving, cheerful giving. It's an equal opportunity area of obedience for us all to begin to know and follow the teaching and leading of Jesus Christ in our life. doesn't matter what we make or don't make. doesn't matter what we have or don't have. Jesus simply says, to begin and test me, to give and test me that I'll be faithful and true to what I've said. And then as he leads us in the progression of giving to the place of sacrificial giving, that when the Holy Spirit of God says, here's a need, we joyfully and willfully look for a way to meet that need. Pray with me this morning, please. Father God, thank you again for this day. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that even now, Lord, you would allow the things that I've said, Lord, to lessen and that you would allow the truths of your word to increase in the minds and the heart of every person in this room now. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that you give us areas and examples of things that, if we're honest, are really tough for us. Lord, the idea of giving, it's not easy for us to do, it's not easy for us to teach, it's not easy for us to hear, but Lord, I pray that you would, at this time, take this idea and begin to challenge and deal with all of us exactly where we are. And Lord, I pray that as we talk about the idea of giving, that we would all come to a place and an understanding that the only thing that you want from us is us. And that you were so willing to know us that you would send your son Jesus to die in order that we can be your children. Lord, let that be the catalyst. Let that be the springboard in our life for everything that we give to you from this day forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.